Genesis chapter 25, we'll look at verses 12 through 18 tonight, <clears throat> as we look at the generations of Ishmael, and normally when we see that phrase, we, uh, we've been making note of a different writer, there's uh, a lot of reason to believe that this is still Isaac until the conclusion um, of our lesson tonight. Uh, so we'll just continue to go with that. Genesis 25, starting at verse 12, says, Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, and Kedar, and Ab Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Massa, and Hadar, and Tima, and Jetur, uh, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the na their names by their towns and by their cattle. Twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, and hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died, and was gathered unto his people, and they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur. This is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. Now before passing to the line of the promised seed, which we know to be Isaac, uh, we've got a little bit of history here, some significance of Ishmael, uh, and this portion of the lesson is going to be a little bit shorter than what we're used to, uh, and since I gave you an 18-minute sermon last Wednesday, I went ahead and added another portion to this one, so I don't, I don't want to make that same mistake twice. But we need to consider here that the, the historian gives us a brief notice of Ishmael to show that the promises respecting that son of Abraham were also fulfilled uh, because he wasn't forsaken. We recall, and we'll read in just a moment, uh, that Hagar uh, was met by the Lord, that there was promises made, first in the greatness of his prosperity and secondly in their independence. And if you look back with me at Genesis 17, we'll see this initial encounter. And again, this is just review. Uh, we went over this as we were going through, but Genesis 17, verse 20. <clears throat> uh, actually, let's start in verse 18. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed forever. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. And we see from our text, Ishmael had twelve sons whose families became distinct tribes. Uh, we will see them over and over again as we continue through. They peopled a very large country that lay between Egypt and Assyria called Arabia. The number and strength of this family were the fruit of the promise made to Hagar and to Abraham concerning Ishmael. The three points that I have for us concerning Ishmael is land, lineage, and life. And, and we'll go through them fairly quickly, but land, lineage, and life. We're not done with Ishmael at the conclusion of this message. Uh, I've got another one that I've been working on for months now uh, that really kind of puts Isaac and Ishmael side by side, but there's still some things we need to to see in Genesis in this study before we get into that harder topic. So we look tonight at land, lineage, and life of Ishmael, looking first at land. And it says in our text, And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, this is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all his brethren. This uh, places them generally in northern Arabia, along the main cavern route between Egypt and Assyria. And I'll, I'll get into each son's 
what we know as far as archaeology and what Henry Morris writes of as far as where each sun ends up being. But in a general sense, this northern Arabia area is where they were. Sure as the wilderness, S-H-U-R, is the wilderness just east of the border of Egypt, and Havila, which means sandy, possibly refers to all the sandy desert area of northern Arabia. The second thing we want to make note of is the lineage, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of the message tonight, is looking at his actual children. As in the case with Keturah's sons at the start of this chapter, the specific sons of Ishmael might uh, or have been hard to identify throughout the ages. There's not a whole lot that we actually have to go on. The Bible does not give a ton of detail as, uh, as this is not the promised seed. The, the promised seed is what we've been following ever since Genesis 3. Uh, and honestly, you can count Genesis 3 because it had to start with Adam and Eve. So what we're following since then, making note of these offshoots of the family tree, has been the promised seed. We, we saw this all the way back in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and as we continue on. They all likely settled, as we've just mentioned, in the central and northern, uh, central and northern central Arabia areas. And looking first at his eldest son, uh, Neboath or Nebojath, which I don't remember mispronouncing when I read through the text. I don't know if I skipped that line or not. I tend to remember when I make horrible mistakes with names. Kids usually remind me too. That helps. Uh, it's been suggested by some authorities as the ancestor of the Nabiateans a prominent tribe who later lived in the same region as the Edomites. Kedar, which we see next in the, in the text there, is associated with uh, this same brother in Isaiah 60, verse 7, where it says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Naboath shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So we see these brothers still connected all the way into, into Isaiah. Kedar evidently had many descendants, and his name is often used in Scripture as essentially synonymous with the Arabs. Isaiah 21:17, and the residue of the numbers of, of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. They're mentioned again in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 28 and 29, where it says, Concerning Kedar and concerning the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall smite, Thus saith the Lord, Arise ye, go up to Kedar, and spoil the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall they take away. They shall take to themselves their curtains and all their vessels and their camels, and they shall cry unto them. Fear is on every side. And then the last reference I have here of Kedar is Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 21. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, and here we see them connected uh, literally, they occupied with thee in lambs and rams and goats. In these were they thy merchants. The next son or brother that we see mentioned here is Jetur. And he seems to have been given the name Ituria at some point. We see reference of that or saw it in our afternoon studies in Luke 3, verses 1 through 2, with a specific mention of the actual land. Luke 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, there's that mention, and of the region of Trachonitis, and the Lysanias, uh, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and uh, Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, 
um, in the wilderness. Dr. Henry Morris also says here that certain Assyrian inscriptions have tentatively been tied in with the names of Adbeel, Massa, uh, and then the first two that we mentioned here, Naboth and Kedar. Duma, which is also mentioned in our text, is named in Isaiah 21 verse 11 as calling out uh, Seir, which was the home of the Edomites. Isaiah 21 verse 11 says, The burden of Duma, he called to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And there's a town in northern Arabia named Dumoth al-Jandalel, which may have some ancestral connection with Duma as well. Similarly, Tima uh, may be identified with the town of uh, T-E-Y-M-A, Tima, in Arabia. And apparently nothing is known, or, or at least the archaeologists, <laughs> The archaeologists haven't proven anything of Mibsum, Mishma, Hadar, uh, Nafish, and Kedema. And many of you know, my fav- this is my favorite thing to teach, is just uh, raw data because it's so exciting. So I'm sorry to all these siblings, I don't have anything on. Uh, but as you can see, the bulk of these tribes are located in Arabia. They've got connections throughout the Bible uh, in Arabia or with or as Arabs. Uh, so just keep that in mind for the next time we see them come up. And you see them come up in our own news pretty often, and that's the same, uh, the same offshoot. The third and last point concerning Ishmael is Ishmael's life. And as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot yet to say about it because we didn't, after he left or were sent out, we hadn't seen him again until now when Abraham's passing. So with Isaac as our chronicler and the separation that we know that these brothers had from one another for a very, very long time, uh, it's very likely that Isaac, as, as the writer, got this information at their father's death toward the latter end of Ishmael's life. Ishmael died at 137 years old, as our text says, which was 58 years before Isaac died, which is the, the main reason most believe Isaac is the one who wrote this portion of Genesis. And it says in our text that he died in the presence of all his brethren, which literally translates that Ishmael fell in the presence of, or Dr. Morris suggests perhaps even rendered to the east of, all his brethren. This seems to signify that Ishmael was apparently a loner, and this was foretold in what we just read from uh, Genesis 17 verse 20, verses 18, 19, and 20. And we also see it in Genesis 16, verse 12, when the Lord says that he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren, uh, which also lines up with the fact that we know most of his princes, most of his sons uh, are tied to Arabs or Arabia, uh, which... Uh, in, the, in the 80s, if you recall, some of the more popular movies, uh, they were depicted as the villains in most of those movies. Uh, and it's, it's gone on through times until where we are today. Now, what we see next in the text is the literal conclusion of Isaac's writing in the beginning of verses 19 of Genesis 25. And I want to read Genesis 19 through 23. It says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Pananaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian, which we'll see again soon. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? 
And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. One thing I want to point out before we go too far, because many um, who have been Baptists for any amount of time know that election is going to come up before the conclusion of this message. I want you to recall this text that the Lord says this and speaks to this before these children are born. He's already, I mean, those who oppose the doctrines of grace get really upset when we read that the Lord loved one and hated the other. Although I, I don't get mad when Steve says he loves his wife and doesn't love mine. God certainly is of an authority to choose who he loves and who he hates, but they get good and riled up at this fact. But note, before they came out of the womb, he knew them. He knew one would be stronger, one would be weaker, one would serve the other. He already knew of the turmoil. And I would like to point out one other thing. Rebecca knew too. She's the one who inquired of the Lord. She says, why is it this way? If it be so, why am I thus? She knew something was going on in the womb. Now, I don't know scientifically how, how much they knew about there being two babies instead of one baby or any of that. Certainly the Lord confirms this here for them. But she knows there's a struggle. She knows there's a struggle. If we were honest with ourselves and honest with the assessment of our own nature, we see a struggle within ourselves as well. And we don't see the same struggle in those who are lost, those who don't know the Lord, because they are delighting in their rebellion. They live in their rebellion. They only have the nature of rebellion. But we recognize a, a struggle within ourselves when we have both the old and the new man. And we're called to put off the old man because one will serve the other. It is possible not to lose your salvation, but to enslave your new man nature to your old man lusts, which we do quite often. Lord, help us. So we see here a familiar text that's referenced throughout the Old Testament and over and over again through the New Testament. And again, um, while we're here on it going through chronologically, I just want to bring attention to the fact that the Lord points out what's in the womb and points out some very specific details which we do see throughout their lives and we will see before they're ever born. Now, <clears throat> as we said, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and it would be another 20 years before they have any children. As, as we see in the, in the text there, uh, she's barren, which um, Sarah was barren. Sarah was barren for way more than 20 years. But we see a, a practice laid out by Abraham in leading his home that exists also in Isaac's home. What does Isaac do? Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife. This is the same place where Isaac came from. The same miracle that the Lord brought about was in an entreatment of the Lord. Now, it, from God's standpoint, it was his plan all along, just like it was for in, in our favorite chapter of Genesis, Genesis so far. It was the Lord's plan for the servant to find Rebekah, to find the wife. But he entreated the Lord, did he not? Which is also a desire of God. His will's not held up by us, but he desires us entreating him, looking to him, calling on him, beseeching him. I don't want to use the word involving him. You don't have much choice there. But you ought to be willing and able to pray for the Lord to drive your feet, to close doors you ought not be involved in, to teach and feed the soul. So like Abraham and Sarah, they, wait, they had to wait many years, and to make it a matter of special prayer before God, 
before God would provide for them a son. Rebekah was from Syria, where Hebrew uh, is Aram, and her relatives are said to be Syrians, which we've already seen a few chapters back. Aram was a son of Shem, so I just want to make that connection for us again as well. Aram was a son of Shem, or Aram was a son of Shem, so the Arameans, or Syrians, were Semites. She had lived in Pandanaram, the plain of Aram, where the towns of Haran and Nahor were settled, and to which her family had migrated. I, I looked for a map, uh, and there may be one in the ones that I pulled out that I can put out later, uh, and I did not find one. But these cities should sound familiar. Nahor, Haran. When we went back to look at Abraham and his two brothers, these cities were involved in that narrative. So I would encourage you to go back, if this sounds unfamiliar to you, and see where we first saw these city names. After years of being barren, the Lord answered their prayer for one child with two. Uh, one of our favorite verses, Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. He is able, and he goes above and beyond. They wanted one, they begged for one, they were urgently uh, inquiring the Lord for 20 years for one, and they get two. And some would say, as, as my screaming child leaves the room, sometimes that's more than you wanted. But they got two. They got warring nations within the womb, but they got two, two gifts of the Lord. And I say that uh, not haphazardly. This is what we see Eve, the first mother, refer to a baby as, as a child of the Lord. As we see back in Genesis uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass, and we go on to the Cain and Abel story. But this was a man up from the Lord, a gift of God. Not necessarily a door man can open on his own. And all the, the, the mechanical and ingenuitive things that man has invented, he's not invented a way to guarantee a baby every time the act of, uh, of sex to bring out a baby happens. Man, honestly, is so caught up in trying to keep it from happening that he doesn't, doesn't fall short, unfortunately, of murder. But here we see it's God's plan. Here we see it's the Lord that opens up this door that provides life, not man. As we read, the two struggled together within her, and we have every reason to take this literally. This isn't uh, an emotional thing. And I've got a quote here from, uh, from, from Henry Morris to just kind of sum this up a little bit. Newborn babies will quarrel if given opportunity to do so outside the womb. Why would we question whether or not they would inside the womb? This situation left Rebecca with no answers and no counsel for which to console her, so she inquired of the Lord. This should be our first inquiry, but he will get us to that point one way or another. It should be the very first thing that we do. Seek wisdom from the Lord. Seek guidance from the Lord. And marvelously, God provided a very specific answer. Again, I want to read, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. It's an important thing to, to probably note about prayer, and this seems like as good a time as any to bring it out. Sometimes the answer you get from the Lord is not necessarily the answer that you thought you were going to get or the answer that you'd looked for. Sometimes, for whatever reason, the answer is no for a season of time. 
Sometimes the answer is two instead of one. And sometimes the answer is way more complicated than that uh, and will cause ages and ages and ages of, of, of argument and struggle among so-called Christians. And that's the case here. Two instead of one. They are indeed warring, and they will war for a very long time. We see division, which is interesting because we see two in one womb, two together, brought about from one family, husband and wife, two made one, one flesh. We see two in the same womb, and they're warring. What is this? Well, for now, it's okay. It's efficient for us to look at it as a warring of the old and new man right here and there. Not that one's saved before they come out of the womb, but the Lord is speaking here in terms of, I already know. And what does he already know? Well, he already knows everything before the foundation of the world, including whom he loves and whom he hates. And this is the reference we see all the way into the New Testament, that one of these he loves and one of these he hates. You can almost hear it, can't you? What? Why would God hate? I thought he was a God of love. Got to have the right starting point, do we not? We have to understand who God actually is, which we'll see in the attribute study that we're doing. He's not necessarily just a God of love. But he taught love. He's instructed love. He introduced love. We talked about this back in Genesis 22, the very first time we really see the concept established and, and exercised. But what he's introducing now, not only to Abraham's lineage, but to the Bible student who's going along in this study, what he's introducing now is that he doesn't love everybody, which has been clear to us as we've gone through the study. We've seen, you know, there were eight on the ark, not everybody, and not all the animals either, just one, you know, two by two, male, female, so that they could procreate in their own kind. What we see within her womb are two utterly different and antagonistic temperaments. It's the same thing we see outside that door. Two utterly different and antagonistic temperaments. The nations they would establish would also bear these same very different antagonistic temperaments. In the end, God said, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, some will hear that and say, well, he doesn't know how to solve problems, does he? That's not usually how it works. Uh, we want peace, peace, peace. You realize when we want peace, 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 we are literally saying we want what the Antichrist is going to bring. When we read the book of Revelation, we should long for that rapture. We should long for that thousand-year reign, that new Jerusalem. Not peace, peace, peace. That's not the revelation that was revealed to John. It wasn't one of peace, peace, peace. Not until we get to those final chapters where he and he's with the Lord during this revelation anyhow, but in those final chapters when it's established what it will be like with the sun as a legend and the tree of life open to all within and no need for anything because the Father and the Son are there and the people are with them. That's when we find peace, peace, peace. Now, if, I, if there were a turmoil between my two daughters, if I wanted to add fuel to the fire, I would literally say, Laney shall serve Livy. And they'll probably fight on the way home. I mean, look at Laney's face. They're going to fight on the way home just because I use this as an illustration. It's not a manner in which God was saying, but it'll be okay. And here's why. This isn't why he said that. He said it because it's true. He said it because it had been foreordained. He said it because he already knew how this was going to go. 
The elder shall serve the younger. Not only does God see these two at present without the modern-day ultrasound equipment, but he also sees them for all time. For all time. He sees our excuses in this very hour. He sees our reluctance in the next hour. But he sees also our desperate need, and he does not forsake his own. We should be thankful for those triomnis. We should be thankful that he knows all things, sees all things. We should be thankful that it's for all time. We should be thankful that he doesn't just speak once. He knows how the argument would end. This is what he's saying here in these few words, the elder shall serve the younger. He not only sees warring nations and turmoil, he knows how the argument will end which is pretty deep considering this argument, as I had mentioned, goes throughout the Bible and throughout the last 2,000 years as well. The promised seed, after all, could only come from one of these two brothers. That's the other thing to think of. Before we scream, it's unfair, unless what the left says is true, these two men couldn't have a baby together. That means only one was going to have the promised seed. Well, that's not fair. That's God's word. I'm not concerned with how fair it sounds. It shouldn't sound fair. Our flesh should rile against it. And for doing it right, the promised seed could only come from one of these two brothers. Is God not permitted to choose which it would come from? Was it a race, whichever one is to have a first male? Whoever has the first male. Or, or maybe it's atonement by works. Salvation by works. Whichever one has the, the first male that they love the most and takes them back up to that mountain and sacrifices them, then he will be the promised seed. No, this isn't a Bible of works-based salvation, which is why we don't see such things, which is why these two didn't have to be born before there was division. It's why these two didn't have to be born before these things that the Lord said were already true. We might think that the oldest son should receive honors. Well, why is that? Why do we assume that the oldest should receive honors? And again, before you uh, hang the messenger, I'm the oldest well, of two. I'm the oldest. I know there's some other oldest in here. But why do we just assume that the oldest should receive honor? Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, none of them are the first. None of them are the oldest. God is sovereign, and we do well not to question his choices. We do well not to try and apply man's faulty logic. How can I say such a thing? Uh, we only imagine evil continually, recall. We shouldn't place man's faulty logic on the other end of the scale of God's justice. Who forbids? God forbids. Man is even on the scale. If man's on the scale, it's to show that we deserve hell. This is the only part of the scale we have anything to do with. We don't calibrate it. We don't make it. We don't uh, clean it. We don't adjust the weights to it to make sure that it's true. God makes sure that it's true. God places upon the scale, and God balances the scale, and God issues judgment based on the scale. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. None have righteous, none, no, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And what are the wages of sin, beloved? Death. 
So even his judgment isn't a mystery. He's already laid it out. He's already explained it. It's been illustrated. Romans 9, verses 10 through 13 says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. And then a parenthetical that says, For the children being not yet born, which is what we're reading, neither having done any good, neither having done any evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. What did these unborn children do? Today's logic would say they're not even lives. They're not even human beings. And, and to go a step further based on today's logic, if they are human beings, they're not male or female. Only evil continually. Check yourselves, brethren. Check the Bible. See what the Lord has to say of such things. Before they were born, before having done good or evil, according to election. This is what the scripture says. That ends our parenthetical, and then the writer goes on. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now the conversation of what Malachi is referencing here goes way longer than Genesis as far as what will happen to the Edomites and, and such. We'll see that throughout the Old Testament. We've seen a lot of it already in what, uh, some of what Isaac had taught in Daniel, but some of what we've also seen from those uh, other prophets. But understand that it was, this is what the Lord had seen. The Lord didn't see two babies having a spat in a womb. He saw their entire lineage. He saw exactly what was going to come out of that womb for all time. He's, he sees and knows all, above all else, and at all times. But this is also the same womb that was going to bear and was bearing the promised seed. So you better believe he's got special attention upon this womb. He knows exactly what's going on there. And he knows exactly what Malachi would write, based on the instruction of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And he knew exactly what would be written in Romans, quoting both our text in Genesis 25, as well as Malachi, no doubt. And man gets good and riled up today, like we're just going to suddenly change it. You aren't going to change the Lord's mind. And that's the wonderful thing about salvation, is it's not the changing of the Lord's mind. It's a plan laid out before the foundation of the world as we were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. And what the Lord Jesus accomplished in his ministry, accomplished on the cross, took place in time, but it was purposefully done based on what was established, what was written, what was recorded before the foundation of the world. It wasn't a decision the Lord made because his mind was changed. He's immutable. He's not some great human being. He's God. There's none like him. There's nothing in comparison to him. The reason it's hard for us to, to, to use similes or metaphors is because there are none to God himself. Genesis 25, 19 brings to close a portion of the book gathered and written by Isaac that we've been studying literally since Genesis 11, verse 27. 
The following uh, session will carry us through Genesis 37, verse 2, which holds Jacob to be its writer. Uh, so if you were hoping for the Isaac and Rebecca love story and, and, and how, uh, how he goes in and out of certain places and lies about this being his wife or his sister, uh, it's going to be brief. But the writer already in the text that we're reading right now, following verse 19, is Jacob. The book of Genesis will now continue to give us a statement of Isaac's background, his marriage, and then it narrates the experiences of Jacob until the time when Joseph was sold into Egypt, which if you know your Bibles, uh, not a lot of Genesis left by the time we get done with that. So praise the Lord for the opportunity that we've had to, to study uh, Isaac's portion of Genesis. Uh, what a blessing it has been, no doubt. Um, I don't know if we should rank what our favorite chapters are, but Genesis 22 is by far the hardest to preach. Genesis 24, probably the most fun as far as the typology. And I pray that you, you, you take that to heart, that you've recorded that in a place that you can revisit at some point. Uh, especially as we go through the Lord's ministry, is some of those that typology is going to become real uh, in the coming months from Genesis 22. It'd be good for you to revisit your notes as to what was typified, what was established uh, six, seven thousand years prior to. Well, I guess at that point it would have been four thousand years prior to. Uh, it's very important for us to understand this is a living word, that it is profitable, as we said on Sunday, that there's no accidents here. That everything here was written, uh, you could think to yourself, it was written for you. It was written for the very purposes of being profitable to you. Because then you have it. It's in your hands. Let us be very much in prayer over how we decide to use it uh, and how much time indeed we give to it.